good afternoon. Tim Ryan here from the Australian Meat Industry Council. Uh, I'm the General Manager of Industry Affairs, uh, looking after our processor membership. Day to day, look after a fairly broad remit of issues, but cover off on sustainability, traceability, biosecurity, uh, markets, um, animal welfare, um, anything else that's thrown out our way. Um, been with ANIC almost a year now. Prior to that, spent several years with MLA. Um, across several roles uh, and earlier on uh, how from a sheep farm in Victoria um, where I cut my teeth. I'll leave it there. So, we're, so does that mean you're a hogget or a mutton now? <laughs> well, <laughs> looking at the state of me, I don't know what I am. Uh, <laughs> I'll be yeah. hogget. Yeah, so, so you're basically you're covering off on all the stuff that Patrick Hutchinson doesn't cover off on in terms of your role, is that right? Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> So, industry affairs, yeah? Give us a gossip. Who's having an affair within the industry? <laughs> <laughs> Who is it? I've heard, I've heard the rumours, but who's having the affairs? No, I don't know if we'll go down that. We don't want to get sued on the egg watches. We've just got our, you know, our sponsorship deal fired up. We don't want to make too much uh, silly statements and lose our very important Merino Polo sponsorship, Andrew. Oh, true. Thanks for bailing me out, Matt. <laughs> anyway, we, we all know who's having affairs. But anyway, uh, we should. It's, it's a meat watcher, meat watcher, apparently. apparently. If you believe, if you believe what's on Twitter, yeah. if you believe the rumours. It is, uh, yeah, the two of us, just the two of us. That's it. Um, right, oh, we better just jump into it because yep. we were supposed to start this twenty-seven minutes ago. <laughs> uh, however, Tim, I was quite surprised by Tim being probably one of the younger guests we have on. Also having the worst technical skills in setting up <laughs> Zoom. Uh, so I'm very, I'm very embarrassed as well because I like to consider myself quite technical, technically savvy. So I've let you down. You can just blame that. Blame the fact that you're out on the farm and you know it was just issues and with, with uh, you know, internet. That'll do. So we'll jump into the six cents. I Cause, reckon because we only got four minutes left to do this whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Right oh. <clears throat> Right on, six cents. So we're going to go the six cents, which is our uh, what do we call it? Psychological test of our guests. Mm -hmm. We're going to fire a question or phrase at you. Give us the first thing that comes to your mind, either again a word or short phrase, and then we will get into the the conversation proper once we've tested that you're you know got the the, the ability to make your way through the whole podcast, Matt. You're up first. And you keep a record of how many questions we've asked. Yeah, I'm, I always I do that now just to show that we're professional. Um, I'll start with uh, processor capacity constraints. Uh, severely limited. Access to blood from abattoirs for making black pudding. <laughs> uh, severely, severely limited, probably. I think Don't, we've got enough for the Australian uh, black pudding market. Well, actually, if you were to speak to Patton Park, one of our other sponsors, they wouldn't agree with you. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's, uh, it's a, and it's an expensive input too. Obviously, that's, it's a high quality, high quality product, but we're, getting, we're already getting sidetracked and we've just started. What about Haggis? Uh, Open-minded. Favourite musician? Ooh. Uh, Eddie Vedder. Who? Uh, the singer from Pearl Jam. Oh, yeah. He's gone out on his own, did a couple of albums, quite good. 
showing you showing your youth, Andrew, not knowing who Eddie Vedder is. Tim's younger than me. You reckon? How old are you, Tim? Uh, how old do you think I am? I thought you were about oh, fit. that's always but yeah. The hairs are misleading. Early fairies. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. There you go, Matt. See, I'm. I'm just because I look young doesn't mean I am young. Yeah. For someone that <clears> listens <throat> to a lot of a lot of music, you don't know a lot about music. Though. You. Were, you were I don't. Surprised. I don't know. I don't you know the surprised. name of anyone. Even the people I yeah. listen to, I'm like. I like that song, but I have no idea. Anyway, you, you we're going to offer a Chris Hoiberg tangent. We have, but you were surprised when I told you that Simple Minds was a Scottish band. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I thought all music was Scottish. Yeah, no, that's true. What about, we're nearly there. We've done four. We're nearly there. What about um, objective carcass measurement? Uh, untapped potential. Right. Access to labour for meat workers. Uh, oh, I had a much better one there. Can we go for a seventh sense? <laughs> well, I've already asked about capacity, and Tim said it was, you know. Right, same, same answer. Yeah, same answer. Know. So do, do your other yeah. one. Yeah. I don't know what it's called, but what's that new labor thing that's coming through, the labor requirement oh. for everyone to be paid the same? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what same you Same job, same pay. What's it called? Same job, same pay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What's your opinion on that when it comes to Meatworks? <laughs> uh, not so relevant. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Well, sorry. No, that's it. It's a short answer only. We'll come. To, we'll probably we'll more come back to it anyway. So, what we usually use the sixth sense just to get a bit of a gauge, but we, that we'll return to it, I reckon, as well. But we might we might start with capacity constraints, and maybe you might want to talk a bit then about the labour side and what that means too from there. So you you mentioned about it being. Um, I'm trying to think what it was now. It was wasn't challenging, but it was something along those lines. Constraint. Constrained or something, yeah. Um, is that is that? Do you want to give us a bit more detail about what what are the bottlenecks? Is it because you know there's there's issues with uh, old plants or or, or just you know um, chiller space, well, you don't, know, cold don't, store don't, logistics? Don't don't I'm just, Matt, 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 I got feedback the other day on the podcast. Yeah, we talked too much. We talked too much, and we we talk over each other, right? But one of the other bits of feedback, Matt, I didn't tell mm. you about this, Matt. Mm. Was some of the feedback was that you answered the question whenever you ask a question. So you ask a question, then go into explain and answer the question on behalf of the guests. Why, why do we even have guests if you're just going to answer the question anyway? <laughs> I was just trying to, you know, just to flesh Tim, it out a bit Tim, more. Give Tim, it more. Tim, Tim knows a fair bit about this industry. He doesn't need your... Doesn't let me to hold his hand. This, this, isn't, this isn't like doing a push polling where you give people the answer before you poll them. Like what the RSPCA do. Well, we're not allowed to talk about polls, but <laughs> right, oh, Tim, what are the constraints? Uh, sorry, sorry. Well, <laughs> I think there's plenty to talk about on capacity constraints. Uh, one, we've got huge issues with just bottleneck issues, but also compounding a lot of that is all the costs adding up along the supply chain, um, parking, I suppose, the livestock market at the moment, all our other costs are going through the roof. Uh, so it's really how those two, I suppose, factors interrelate. Um, on, on the bottleneck side, the one clear uh, inhibitor to us expanding production is really labour availability. Um, you look at the national stats, what 3.5% unemployment rate, everyone's in the same boat screaming for labour. Um, 
we're particularly affected uh, with some areas, particularly a rural rural uh, processing plants uh, where there's already a limited pool of labour, and that's getting a lot tighter as well. Um, and metro metro plants having to fight with um, other big employers uh, nearby. Um, everywhere you look, we're short on labour. Um, the labour we do have is getting more costly, um, so that makes it even more difficult. Uh, and we just don't have that pressure valve of uh, the visa pathway um, acting efficiently enough to, I suppose, bring the people in that we can't find locally to to alleviate those numbers. Um, so uh, I think that's a, a huge driver at the moment. Yeah, we have seen a lot more livestock coming onto the market, but we haven't been able to match that with our capacity purely because we don't have the people there to, to ramp up production. So, add so, those it's, so it's really people that's... Yeah, people. And, and like we've seen over the last few years, various bottlenecks, shortages of all kinds of products due to COVID. Uh, a lot of that is worked through. Occasionally you'll find like pallet shortages or mm. uh, reefers are pretty uh, available now, but at times they've caused issues. Um, any day of the week there could be uh, another product you're short on. Um, but, yeah, labour is is solely the number one issue. And apart from the livestock, that's our number one number one operating expense. In terms is it of probably, terms, just, before we go off that, the labour issue, is it, is it, would it be true that, say, if you're talking about abattoirs in the regional areas, not so much the ones closer to urban settings, but if you could get the labour as the first stage, but are some of those more regionalised abattoirs, is there enough housing to, to house the labour if you could get it? Yeah, and that's the other, you're seeing processing plants go out, buy housing, take on leases, to try and shore up what what accommodation they can find, um, some are building building additional accommodation nearby or offering bus services to where there is housing. Um, all of which adds expense. Um, it's not cheap, um, and it's also processors don't want to be in the business of being a landlord. There's <laughs> um, all kinds of challenges with trying to um, find housing for people. Um, so, yeah, particularly those uh, rural areas. Uh, and depending on where it is, like we have seen a bit of a rural migration out of the cities in the last few years too. So depending on the plant and, and the location, we've also got that additional competition for, for housing. Because most most of those people moving to the countryside are probably white-collar workers. Yeah, on, on, big, on big wages, that paying, paying city. They're not, they're, they're not moving out to the countryside to go and uh, work in a boning room. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, agricultural market analysts on big wages that can sit in the home office and just look at markets from their desk. You know, they're the ones that are causing the problem, are they, Andrew? Yeah, they are. Well, fact is, that is an issue. And um, no, wait a minute. I've just got a question, actually. I did have a question, but Matt sort of rudely interrupted me again. <laughs> um, in terms of like the labor force, you don't have to give me a stat, but what would the percentage be roughly? that are, you know, workers on some form of temporary visa, like overseas workers, effectively. It must be pretty high. Uh, yeah, and it depends a lot on the business and how um, exposed they are. Uh, rule of thumb, and I think this was based on research pre-COVID, but it was anywhere around a quarter to a third of, of the labour force at a national level was, was some kind of visa program. Okay. Um, That's less than I expected. Yeah, but some 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 businesses would be highly reliant mm. and be quite um, some some would be able to access labour um, much closer to home and and have a high share of domestic staff. So 
it's highly variable, but yeah, rule of thumb, say a third. So that's that's the problem, lack of staff, yeah. What's the what's the solution then? Because I, I know that I'm pretty sure I read some the other day that meat workers has dropped down the priority listing. Is that right? In terms of getting priority on on, on visas, uh, yeah, yeah. If you're looking at, I suppose, solutions, you got, I suppose, long term how you build capacity in Australia, um, but that's not going to fix things overnight. But still, it's worth pursuing. We we need to have a pretty skilled and as well as unskilled labour force here wanting to take a job in an abattoir. Um, so there's a lot of training capacity and pathway building uh, we need to do, and there's a lot of programs addressing that um but to fix it here and now and probably for the next 12 plus months uh we really need that visa pathway to be operating uh like the the challenges are that at the moment we're probably trying to keep things as is as opposed and, and not get any tighter um but we, we really are needing that visa pathway to operate. So I suppose the two two main visa pathways we have access to at the moment is the Meat Industry Labour Agreement. Um, that's been a long-standing agreement that we've been able to tap into to bring meat workers in. Uh, the challenge on that front is changes to the TISMIT, which is effectively kind of the minimum wage safety net that, that people um, bringing in employees under one of these labour agreements needs to pay staff and it's looking to shift up to about seventy thousand dollars, and that's because I remember the four five. I came here on a four five seven visa many moons ago, and I'm pretty sure the wage that you had to pay was fifty five. Yeah, is that what it was on the meat workers visa? Yeah, so that would have been the TISMIT as well, uh, and that. So uh, what's a, what's a TISMIT? The oh, we have to put me on the spot here. Uh, that's just the minimum wage you got to pay. The minimum wage. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Um, so at fifty-five, you were getting paid when you came as a backpacker. No, was that, I, was, was that... I wasn't getting paid. I had to pay. I got paid the fifty-five, and I had to give half back to my employer. Did you? Yeah. But that was that was fifty-five thousand a month or per month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the challenge is that if you're jumping from in the fifties to seventy k, uh, that's well above the award. That's well above a lot of uh, enterprise bargaining agreements. So, effectively, um, the the uh, um, the incentive to go out and, and pay people that much, and it, it's really designed for all professionals, including white collar yeah. jobs too. So, it's not with a meat packer, meat processor in mind. Um, and then when they come in, uh, we then need to match their pay. Uh, well, we need to match our local staff pay with whatever we're paying them as well. Um, so all of a sudden, you bring in people on the um, on, on the miler, and your wage bill lifts across the board. So if you if you're looking because, at that, because, it, because because of that same same job, same pay. That's yeah, due. Is that, that due to is that due to come in in July? That that, well, that, would, that would already come in under our existing industrial. It does now, right? So it's so, there, it's effectively so there now. The, the same same job, same pay is already in place. Okay, is it? Well. If we're, if we're and this is probably where I'm venturing into uh, territory that's outside my skill set, but um, under our in, existing industrial arrangements, be it the, the award or an uh, enterprise bargaining agreement, you've already got those same job, same pay uh, requirements in place. So, um, okay, the changes in the pipeline, as far as I understand, effectively are, are, are already applied to us. 
So we need to we need to start looking at that, Matt, in terms of for our business. Because we both we, well, we both get paid zero at the moment. Yeah, that's so, yes, so, so, so well, I guess, I'm happy so, to increase I'm happy to increase your salary by hundred percent. Yeah, so I guess we've been following these rules for a long time. Mm. So it's pretty handy to know. I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know if we're we're not really bringing in any staff at the moment because you, you'd have to have someone that would want to work with us, Andrew. It's almost impossible. That's the that's the <laughs> challenge. Yeah, imagine imagine that mm. finding somebody that would work with us. That would be. That's one thing. That would be a red flag as well. You'd be like, if they're willing to work with us, we don't want to employ them. Because there must be something wrong with them. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the first hurdle they've got to get over. Um, what about the the Pacific uh, Pacific kind palm. of uh, palm palm labor scheme? Um, is that is that something that is that working adequately, or is that you know is the is the Miller one the preferred option? Well, the the, the Miller one um, at the moment is, is severely challenged by those changes to the Tismet. Um, the the palm program has been really good for our industry. We brought in a lot of people under that program it's not perfect um and it's got its own challenges but it has been we have been able to find people and bring them in um the the changes they're looking to make however to that program particularly around um kind of onshore support for those for those employees will make it more difficult um particularly around providing housing um for extended periods of time so it adds a lot of cost um and will make it i suppose less appealing uh, for the sector to tap into going forward. Um, I think some of those changes are still yet to be finalised, um, but I suppose, if anything, it's going in a direction that will make it um, less business-friendly. Um, so I suppose looking at our two key pathways from an immigration or, or visa visa employee perspective, it it's not great, um, and, and it doesn't look like it's going to take a massive uh, 360 or 180 anytime soon. So I think um, we're, we're advocating for, for change, um, but we really need more and more attention to be drawn to it um, if we're wanting these types of bottleneck issues to to actually be addressed or else we're going to continue to, to see these challenges going forward. Because meat processing, meat processing is the biggest manufacturing industry now in Australia. Mm-hmm. Or, or as we like to say, this disassembly industry in uh, in, in Australia. Reverse reverse manufacturing. Reverse manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have thought that like one of the big things from the Labour government is onshore jobs. Yeah, they want they want to increase processing of various things, and there's a lot of funds out there for. I saw some funding out there for you know processing wool in Australia. Have, have the government been sort of pretty open in terms of trying to find solutions to these problems? Because like you say, like we've said before, it's the biggest disassembly stroke assembly industry in Australia. Well, uh, the solutions we really need are on the IR immigration front. Uh, we don't need a whole bunch of R&D thrown at this problem today to fix it. We just need um, the policy changes to enable us to, to operate fully. Like fully understand government's priority about supporting local jobs and 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 developing local skills. But when you got the unemployment rate at 3.5% and mm. we're crying out for staff and no one's coming, it's 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 um 
it's almost uh, it's pretty ineffective trying to pursue local jobs when they when they simply um, aren't the people to fill them. Those those like uh, just by the way, the TISMA is a temporary skilled migration income threshold. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, the quick question for you though, in terms of like the skilled migrations, yeah, is there a list of countries that are on that list of approved countries, or is it like open slather? Um, I'm I'm open to, happy to be corrected. The MILA is open to all countries. There's also some specific country ones that sit alongside it. Okay. The Palm Wine is obviously associated with the, with the Pacific. Um, so there are some countries that uh, I suppose earmarked for for certain visa programs. Um, but I'm pretty sure that MILA's. Okay. I just I just wondering because obviously you've got some countries out there that are have got quite a strong history with working with other animals or meat. So they talk Philippines. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, Viet, probably, there's Vietnam, probably, I think, as well. Vietnam's there's, 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 one, prob- there's probably not a pig farm in Australia that's not got a Filipino working on it. And then you've got Brazil. Like Brazil's got that big meat industry, big meat export. You've got JBS there. You've got Minerva. Minerva. Yep. Teas. You know, the US got big meat work sort of industry. Those are countries that you could potentially target. But I suppose it's not it's not getting people. You can find people. It's getting if we can, If we can build a pathway and um, even offer the, the prospect of long-term permanent residency, mm. build those skills before they even get here, um, if we've got the certainty around that, we could like, – people coming from any manufacturing industry have the skills that we need to – to work in a meat works. To an extent, no, I guess, like working in the uh, the iPhone factory in China is a slightly different environment from a boning room. So it does, oh, ta- it does take a bit of a, a different sort of mindset to be butchering an animal and slaughtering an animal than... Isn't that part of the p- problem from a like, local labour force Concern that that a lot of locals one there's other other alternative jobs that are maybe not you know dealing with what you're dealing with and in cold environments and wet environments and you know hard work um, you know that they're not we're not as familiar nowadays with that kind of stuff as a local uh, is that would that be true you're not really it's not as an attractive proposition if you've got lots of other jobs you could go to yeah I think it definitely suits some some people I've myself have. Worked in a on a kill floor and in a boning room at times, particularly in my uni days. Um, I quite enjoyed the environment. Um, it, uh, I'm not, I don't know if it matched my personality or not, but um, uh, I think there's good jobs out there in those environments. I and I actually think there's a lot more in common with a boning room and a factory producing iPhones than than we think. Really, it's fine motor skills, it's repetitive task, it's attention to detail. Um, they're the transferable skills that we need, um, not necessarily um, so, knowing the nose from the tail. So I think Geelong just closed down their last factory last night, I think it was. There was I saw something in the news about one of the Geelong Ford factories closing down. So maybe maybe we can get some of those to go into the, the meat works on the east side of Melbourne, west side of Melbourne. There's, there's a solution. Yes, yeah, so you always got lots of solutions. That with that palm, with that palm scheme, Tim, uh, those workers that were coming through from that space, I would imagine traditionally would have been going more more likely to have gone into horticulture when they came across or, or something of that nature. Um, did it take? Did the, did the was there a longer period of time to take to kind of get them adjusted or to train them up uh, than what you'd get if you were bringing someone in from some say field hands that already had a bit of 
background in, in meatworks and processing? Yeah, there's definitely those training requirements. And if you think about the Pacific, like there's not a huge meat industry there. Um, so you don't have that native butcher um, workforce that likes the, yeah, the Philippines or or a lot of Asia already has. Um, so there are those additional training requirements. But if, if you're given if you're giving business certainty um, and a clear program they can work within, um, they'll invest, particularly in the current climate, to build those skills up uh, and make them um, make them useful. And you mentioned, like, now that COVID's kind of moving past us, we've got container availability um, back to more normal levels in terms of pricing and, I guess, availability. I think air freight's continuing now to increase. We're not quite back at the pre-COVID volumes, but we're getting there. Um, what about things like, you know, chiller space, you know, before things are getting exported out? Is that is that kind of – because I have heard that since COVID – and some of the just supply chain disruptions we saw, even with some of the flooding nationally that took out roads, that a lot of the bigger retailers are wanting to have a, a bit more extended product available around, dotted around the country in these cold stores so that they're not having the shortages as often that we saw through COVID and, and, and those um, flood events. Is that, also, like, is that also causing problems in terms of once it gets out of the abattoir, and you know, for, for distribution effectively into that retail or export channel, is is, is that a significant concern as well? It, it's it's not something our members have raised with us as causing a disruption to business. I think it, they're being worked through, um, particularly that export pathway. Uh, reefers, um, they're, they're they're freely available now. Um, we're not having those kind of plug issues uh, for the reefer points in the ports like we did at, at times during COVID. Um, so that product can move onto the onto the export market reasonably well. Maybe there's isolated instances where there's a backlog or, or product building up in, in cold stores. Um, I think probably the bigger the bigger backlogs maybe are probably in market. Um, some of those inventories building up um, uh, in certain pockets of the world. So there's been news this week. Someone commenting, I think it was your good friend Quilty um, speculating it. Asia's got a lot of meat and cold, cold rooms. Um, uh, so there's that potential, um, but I think domestically we're we're um, we're looking okay. Yep. Your 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 counterpart Patrick, who's who's been on the podcast a few times, he's he's never lost. He, he was disappointed. I think he was a bit um, insulted. I, I took the opportunity and it didn't uh, offer it to him first. <laughs> well, he, Patrick's never 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 short of a word on things or, or an opinion. He put on an op-ed this week. Or was it yeah. last week on concerns that the uh, meat workers were, uh, what's the word, profiteering? profiteering? Tell us, for, for people who haven't listened to it or, or, or read about it, tell us what that was about. I suppose I'm trying to put the record straight. Like we, we do this process every few years. We, we live in a fairly cyclical market. We go through these big waves of over and under supply. Um, We've just gone a period, through a period of massive herd and flock rebuild. We're sitting on big numbers, uh, and we are seeing at the moment producers sending a lot more stock uh, through to slaughter and not putting them onto the market. Restockers are pulling back. Feedlotters are pulling back. Um, and the market has corrected quite substantially. Uh, but that's not us taking advantage or or um, profiteering on the opportunity. It's purely, from our perspective, supply and demand. Um, at work, as we always have, see through this through this cycle, um, but also with all those labour issues we're facing at the moment, 
that's compounding that uh, correction even more. Um, in, in in previous years, if you look back to say like 2014 and 15, um, big rebuild followed by a drought and a massive liquidation, um, we could kill pretty comfortably 150. Uh, 150,000 head of cattle a week um, through a lot of those two years um, and similarly big big numbers of sheep and, and lambs. Um, we're currently sitting, I think we've recently peaked at probably 120, so we're still well short of that. And if you look at kill sheets, they're, they're backed up weeks, a couple in a couple of instances, uh, months. Um, if we had the people, we could ramp up. Um, particularly right. if you look at going forward, there's more capacity coming online a few plant upgrades, a few new plants um, being built. Um, the the challenge to actually lift capacity will depend on will depend on people. What about take- at, at, at the moment? Yeah, you've got that. Like, we've got, I guess, a nameplate capacity around the country of what a plant can do uh, is X. Yeah, but we're way underneath that. But let's say, for instance, we took an abattoir or a meatworks, whatever you want to call it. Um, Let's say you pick pick one at random in say the WA. What like it might have a nameplate capacity of I don't know. I'm gonna pick a number of a hundred is a hypothetical number. But that would be like a double shifting type of a facility. How many facilities around the country do you think are at true maximum capacity? Well, they'd be close to maximum capacity with their workforce. If we could have more people and run oh, Yeah, but that, that's what I mean. Like, so, you, so you've got a workforce capacity constraint, which means like a plant that is, a plant could be theoretically maximum capacity based on its workforce just now of say 50. But if it had no workforce challenges, it could be 100. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's probably plants operating at full steam ahead. If you threw more people at it, they wouldn't process anything else. Yeah. Um, but I think they're pretty rare. Yeah, because that's, that's what I'm. That's sort of wondering because like, I saw I saw a report the other day that said that there was a, an eighty six thousand dollar eighty six thousand dollar eighty six thousand head shortage in WA for sheep slaughter. Mm. However, there's a lot of confusion about that because that's not necessarily the nameplate capacity. If there was not a labour issue, then that eighty six thousand deficit would be you know swallowed up pretty easily but it's based on the current capacity not the current potential capacity yeah without, yeah. without constraints the, the other i suppose factor when you're looking at labor it through through a plant um it's also about how much value you can capture as that animal moves through the plant hmm. so if we're inundated with livestock as we currently are you so, for instance, on the sheep side, you could be doing carcass trade or six-way box box mutton or, or lamb, pretty low input in the boning room, if any, um, and basically bypass that entire workforce and put it on a plane or a boat into an export market, but you're not getting the value of um, the carcass balance like you normally would if you split yeah, it. Leaving a lot, you're leaving a lot on the table, leaving a lot on the table that could be yeah. added value. Yeah. The, the so you're kind of dipping into the commodity market basically and, and presuming a pretty standardised product. Um, so I think there's probably a lot of that going on as well. If, if you can't get the staff, you're, you're, you're cutting those um, value-adding opportunities out of your business purely because there's a market in doing that high-volume, um, low-value-add product. 
Um, but that also means if we're doing that, there's effectively less value being brought into the system than that goes down the supply chain to the producer as well. So I think there's a lot of those factors at play. Um, plus when you compound all the other costs we've got, um, even to do that simplified supply chain um, means there's just kind of less and less able to trickle down. You mentioned, Tim, about this cyclical nature and, and you know, mentioned a couple of times in the past we've had either liquidation or rebuild uh, and what it meant for processing. And, and those numbers you, you refer to, if you look at, it's clear that you know, slaughter and, and turnoff and yardings are higher this year compared to the last two years. But as you said, we just come off the back of a pretty robust rebuild, right? Um, so when you compare current kind of volumes to, in terms of slaughter volumes to the historic, we're probably, you know, for the most part, back near to the five-year averages, right? We're not, we're not in a situation, I wouldn't say right now, where we're at kind of drought-level turnoff. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and that's a potential that in the next year or so we may move into El Nino and then we get that you know, much higher uh, level of slaughter. Um, is that why there's this imperative? If we're, if we're, as a processing sector, if we're kind of struggling a bit now to get through this oversupply, but it's, it's really not a situation you'd call classic drought oversupply, um, you know, how long have we got to get this right before before we really get some serious bottlenecks. Yeah, I think the, probably the the length that plants are booked out is probably the indication that explains the the difference between how much uh, is coming through and, and how much we can process. I think potentially some of those uh, elongated kill sheet uh, windows maybe also kind of extended because all these animals have kind of hit the market pretty quickly and producers have kind of turned off a lot of animals in a short period of time. So potentially some of that, once we figure out how to maybe do less value adding or move people around a plan or try and find more people to add extra shifts, some of that window may shorten. But I think we'll be catching, chasing our tail a bit because, yeah, like you said, there's more production coming through the system because we know the herd and the flock have increased fairly substantially in the last few years. So it is going to be an ongoing challenge that we have to keep chasing. Um can't remember your original question now, Matt. Is yeah, there... you know, that's right. Well, no, it does. And, and I'm just thinking, um, as you were saying it, like MLA just released their outlook for cattle um, earlier this week. And that's yeah. they've got pretty much for the next three years, they've got an increase of, I think, at roughly 5% each year now, like increasing slaughter and what they had in January. They've now upped it by another 5%. So we are getting back to those, you know, potentially elevated slaughter levels above the, above the long-term average. Um, and, so and those MLA projections always assume average seasonal conditions, like if we, like you said, hit an El Nino and we're back to 2014, that's a very challenging env environment from a, a supply chain management perspective. Well, um, yeah, if you just if you just look at cattle, we're somewhere around the, you know, this year around 7 million head annually, whereas a proper El Nino could push it to above 9 million head. So mm. you're talking, and that's just the cattle side. <laughs> so you're talking some big volumes that could potentially, you know, we are we have got a, a herd that's nudging towards 30 million head nearly, um, you know, and obviously the, the sheep flocks rebounded 20 million or so from the lows, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's plenty of spare, um, you know, kind of carcasses that could go through uh, should we get a real dry spell, which is a bit of a concern. Um we might move on though. Like you mentioned about that value add aspect and and how some of that value has been left on the table. Do you think um, 
It's probably not, and I think you've said earlier too that it may not be a short-term thing looking at labour-saving devices and maybe scanning and robotics implementation into into processing plants to free up some of that labour so that it can be maybe redirected to a boning room if you could get, you know, an, an advancement um, in that. Is that is that a longer-term solution that seriously needs consideration? Obviously, the, the labour's maybe shorter-term and extends to the long-term, but we've got to be looking at, at ways that we can um, do those preliminary procedures and those initial cuts to the carcass using a robot rather than using labour. Yeah, and I think there's some good examples in industry now of robotics being used um, to take out those labour units or even just having um, robotics assist people in their day-to-day tasks so you can maybe reduce your overall labour units or or ensure people don't, um, uh, I suppose, break down or, or, or you don't have the same OHS issues and then have to backfill those roles. Um, so there's a lot of... Uh, opportunities there. Um, that said, like we still need to have the um, the engineers and mechanics to still maintain all this stuff. So you, you're getting rid of one skill set from the burning room, but you still need to replace that somewhere with with the expertise and the skills. Um, and that's where we're also facing major challenges. And, and the parts, I guess, if you know, as you see in a lot of agriculture, if you, you've got the machine there, but something, some small little part that's got a backlog of three weeks goes goes um haywire then you you're back to square one again right yeah yeah so i think like opportunities there um definitely long term like i think more and more when when we're we're an expensive place to do business if you look at the cost of processing in australia we're a good 50 percent higher than the us a good almost double that of kind of brazil and argentina um we need to find ways where we can be competitive um labor here is getting more and more expensive Noted, it's getting expensive everywhere in the world, but particularly here, um, taking out some of those costs or or transferring those people into more high skilled jobs that we can more easily find here to suit kind of the the the, the labour market is one important way we need to continue to go. I think um, that that higher cost base almost necessitates a move to a greater value add, like processing with a greater value add focus, rather than that kind of carcass commodity base. Uh, we have to move towards that because of that high cost base. Yeah, and, and I think we, we produce a great product, like Australian producers, Australian processors, the whole supply chain can produce a, a product the market wants. and they, they, they do pay a premium for it, um, but it is expensive. And, and when you've got the likes of Brazil and Argentina, um, particularly getting better market access into, into Asia over the last decade, they're kind of... And right on our heels, we need to continue to be able to um, compete still on price. Um, so any way we can strip out costs from the from the supply chain is is is, is critical. You, um, we might speak a, swing across because I'm conscious of time. Um, you mentioned at the outset with the objective carcass measurement. I think you said there was a lot of potential um, to 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 that aspect, but maybe not. Was it untapped potential or something? I think you might have mentioned. More, um, I think we. There's a lot of hope being pinned on objective carcass measurement to solve a range of problems. Um, I think it's really compelling and exciting work, and there's been a lot of R&D done in that space. Uh, and we've seen some of those um, projects come through to commercialisation, but there's a huge commercialisation piece that needs to come through still to make sure all that research um, can be put into practice. Um, a lot of plants are still 
pricing pricing livestock the same way they always have with a pretty straightforward grid. Um, we haven't seen that huge shift change. Like um, potentially maybe when when Dexa and, and the likes was first spruced would would, would revolutionise the industry. We haven't seen that. Um, I think we continue need, need looking at uh, commercialisation pathways for a lot of that objective carcass measurement. Um, a lot of potential, but yeah, yet to see it. There are some, I think, Gundagai Meats in um, as one that I think is using that technology a little bit more proactively. I guess would be a good description, um, and claiming as well that that that's allowing them to pass back value down the supply chain because it can be identified, you know, what they're targeting in terms of the specs and and giving that feedback all the way back to the producer. So therefore, the producer gets rewarded with with that, you know, with hitting those specs. Is that is that are they a bit of a um, an example yeah, it's of always, you always get early adopters in this space and um it, it's it's promising to see the work they're doing it's all pretty exciting stuff um but i suppose where the rest of industry is at they're kind of still sitting on the on the sidelines a bit seeing how it all plays out um but really wanting that uh uh i suppose commercialize um precedent uh, before they go and invest in all this in all this technology so I think we're, we're moving in, in the right direction um, and there's definitely some exciting work happening, but um, we really need, I suppose, um, that commercial pull through to make sure that, that R&D can be fully utilised. Is um, I, I noted like you've got um, you know, TFI and Murray Bridge just grown reopened after that fire. It took them a while to get that all up and running, but then you know they came out... Um, pretty quickly and said they need something like 350 staff now to fill it, which I think is going to be problematic. But um, having those kind of, I guess, for want of a better description, greenfield sites where you can you can build a, an abattoir that, that has that future, um, you know, planning in mind, because some of the older, I guess, abattoirs, when you're talking about bringing in robotics or scanning machines, that you've got space limitations or... I presume there's, you know, height limitations. Some of the older abattoirs I've been into, you know, they're, they're, they're a fairly tight space, um, you know. Um, so, you know, is that slowing down the the uptake of some of that robotics in the fact that some of these places just don't have the physical spatial boundaries within the site to be able to house what, what you know, what, what's required in terms of um, putting putting some of that robotics in place, you know, in that early part of the chain? Yeah, partly it's it's physical constraints. Partly it's the cost of actually putting it in. Um, I think on particularly on the say the eating quality side, and fully admit I'm no expert in in this space. But a lot of times there's, there's no one silver bullet. Like there's no one objective carcass measurement that does everything that we need. Um, you can do bits and pieces, but there's still nothing that can do the full the full gamut. Um, so it's figuring out which ones we want to incorporate into a business, which ones fix. Uh, address our business needs that is where those decisions are uh, um, happening and potentially creating a bit of hesitation about which one to follow. thought Andrew was just going to say something because you brought your microphone back down but then you've sat back and relaxed. No, no, I don't know if anyone, I'm, just, I'm just enjoying the, the conversation. And, uh, <laughs> I, I get told I speak too much as well. So... In terms of, I've got a controversial question for you. What about animal rights activists in abattoirs? You know, we saw probably two months ago the uh, 
CO2 with the pig abattoirs in Victoria and uh, people going into them, which to be honest, I, the, my first thing when I heard about that was you can go and buy a camera from JB Hi-Fi for about $1,200 for a set of 16 cameras that will notify you if somebody's coming on your property. How the hell if somebody gets onto an abattoir in these day and ages would be, first of all, be the thing I would question. But that's by the by. What is the what is the go to like from from your organisation when it comes to these animal rights activists uh, coming on site and and causing this kerfuffle about basically like CO two is the standard practice around the world for pigs. Yeah, CO two. There's potential issues with some of the footage that was was taken, but by and large, CO two is widely used around the world and is considered best practice. Yes. People have been looking at alternatives, but still nothing can match CO2 for animal welfare reasons, but also operational reasons as well. Um, Europe, US, um, Australia, we all use CO2 um, commonly. Um, there's still not a viable alternative. So I, I think the, the calls from activists to ban CO2 is really um, the first step in, I suppose, death by a thousand cuts of trying to end the pig industry. <laughs> Yeah. Um, or, or the, broader, the, broader, the broader red meat livestock industry. Yeah. I think. Yeah. When they're wanting a ban and there's no alternative, you kind of got nowhere to go. Um, uh, and I think industry's always looked at alternatives, there's been a lot of RD done, um, but you only do so much RD um, in a space before um, it, it, it ceases to find new options. I think open-minded to alternatives, but until there's something viable that's scientifically proven to to match the animal welfare outcomes. Um, I've, I've actually, I do have another question to ask as well. And this is a question to either of you, because you're both, <laughs> you're both like Tim, you haven't always been there. You've been MLA as a market analyst. Matt's something uh, to do with me. Um, but in terms of, Matt, they mentioned that the wider red meat industry, yeah? And I had a discussion with someone the other day about this year. Pork. Is pork a red meat or not? <laughs> are you, are, are you just, wanting... I'm, I'm opening that to the, the floor. Is is pork, I know sheep. Well, it used to be, it used to be advertised as the other white meat uh, a little while back. A few years back, they used to call it the other white meat. I'd, and when I've, go, I, when I, I've, when I've Googled I it, I get, two, I, I get two answers. But when yeah, I Google I it. Didn't I thought we might have asked Margot Andre this the very first podcast? I thought it was classified scientifically as a red meat, but a lot of people do consider it a white meat. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that, Matt. Um, I think from a agro-political lens, um, the way kind of Australia's industry is structured has always been treated separately and outside the red meat circle. But from our perspective, um, we, we treat our pork members just as much, just the same way we treat our red meat or, or beef and lamb members. Um, end of the day, it's all meat. Um, um, and a lot, a lot of the time we're facing the exact same issues. Right. right. I'm not just more more curious yeah. about whether, whether it's considered, because some people said to me it's a white meat. And I said, well, no, I don't think it is a white meat. I think it depends on which which corner of the world you're in. Mm. Uh, I think as well, like pork in different markets is quite different coloured too, depending on genetics and feed. It depends how it's cooked as well. From that perspective, I reckon duck is more of a red meat than a, than a white meat. Yeah, I'd have said so. Mm. What, about, what about venison? 
What's a red meat? Well, it's definitely a red meat, but in temp, like I, I was talking to somebody the other day about how my favorite meat is venison, yeah? But it's really a struggle to sort of find venison in Australia. But there's a shed load of deer that are feral, yeah? How do they go about getting, where you can find venison, is there abattoirs in Australia that will do like a, uh, like a toll kill on venison or, or toll butchering process? I assume so, Andrew, but um, yet to find there out. Are, there are some small, little, small kind of abattoirs, I think, that do. It, it's a bit hit and miss, though, I think. It's not a, yeah, it's not the primary um, preferred option, I think, and even less so nowadays if it's uh, there's already issues uh, in terms of the speed of the chain as it is. You don't want to be getting small drips and drabs of a different species coming through. I would have thought it's got to be lots of one of those little independent boutique-type ones that are, Almost doing everything by hand, mm. yeah, but it's probably a throwback, Andrew, you, from the days you know when you were Lord of the Manor back in the old country, going around. One, we, just, your, we just we just got one of the staff to do it. <laughs> when you were going around in your hound's tooth jacket uh, across the moors, you know the wearing 303 my, rifle. Well, wearing my hunter, I was going to say wearing my hunter wellies. I'll tell you a yeah. story about hunter wellies, yeah. Is this a Hoiberg tangent? It's a massive Hoiberg tangent. Are these the are those the really expensive like hundred dollar, hundred pound boots or something? Higher than that, isn't it? Keep going. You you know what hunter wellies are, Tim? Yeah, is this this a um advertised slot? No, no. Well, well, it it could be. (laughs) It might be. If if you let me get to the point, this is a sad thing for me. But hunter wellies are about three hundred pounds a pair. For for, uh, for for gum boots, well, for Wellington boots are gum boots in in proper English in language. Proper English wellies. Yeah. Well, they were invented in Dumfries, <laughs> right? My hometown, your, your hometown, your hometown, and, and and so they were manufactured there for a long time. That along with, funnily enough, the factory that made them also made rubber parts for cars. Just gone bust. So. If they were a sponsor, they'd be a shit. Maybe they should have sponsored us before, and they would have had more sales in Australia. But that was a complete tangent. I'm just telling you that Hunter Wellies have gone bust, and that was a sad thing because it's well, it's probably it's probably you know a newer, more modern uh, footwear made out of synthetic materials, rubber or some kind of a foam or whatever it is, has taken the place of the Wellies. Maybe the Crocs of possibly it's, it's you know Crocs. Your favourite footwear item, Andrew is. Has led to the demise of a of an institution. Possibly. Anyway, I think we've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, and uh, look, I think Tim, you've covered off on all of the uh, all of what we need to know about the uh, meat processing industry. Required yeah. aspects. The the the, the, the level of tangent and um, ridiculous commentary <laughs> usually means that we're. I've got, to I've, the I've, end. Just before we finish, I'll, I'll leave it with one one question for Tim. If Murray Stroke uh, Albanese was on the podcast with you just now, and you had you could give him three things to assist the meat processing industry, what would they be? Um, labour number one. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's uh, addressing ways where we can, well, long term supporting us to build the capacity domestically, but short term finding ways to fix 
uh, the uh, visa pathway or, or make the, open that up so we can bring the people in to really to drive that. Uh, two, I think for, for processes and producers, the number one thing where we're aligned is in building demand. And the best way to do that from my perspective is to open new markets and improve market access. So the Department of Aid does a lot of good work um, removing technical barriers. Um, that's where the, the focus needs to be, particularly as we get more and more FTAs, uh, technical barriers is where it's at. Um, and that's what really inhibits us or, or adds costs to doing business. That's two. Um, I think three, uh, in, in the current environment, um, we, we face a lot of detractors as an industry. I think we produce a great product. We do it, we do it sustainably. We've got good animal welfare um, practices and regulations in place, but we still get the haters. I think having ongoing federal support from the minister and, and making sure his cabinet colleagues also um, hear the message, I think is is, is important. Just so we can push back, because we get we get stuck in these fights with animal activists or NGOs, where um, uh, we're we're continuing to to disagree. I think um, particularly quietly, a lot of a lot of government, a lot of ministers support us, but publicly they could probably come out more at times and, and throw their weight behind us. Um, particularly given the value of our industry, the number of people we employ. Um, it is vital to the Australian economy, particularly the rural economy, um, and I think we we play a very important role. So they were they were good answers. They were all wrong, though. <laughs> what's what's number uh, one, Andrew? Number one is uh, that we've got to get a marketing program within Australia for the domestic market to increase the consumption of offal, <laughs> um, and increase the access to, to various awful products and educations on how to cook awful so that we have a product that is fully carbon neutral because there's nothing going to waste. Well, it's already going overseas. Oh, 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 oh. Right? Well, change there, Andrew. Nothing nothing we produce or process no. goes to waste. Yeah, but I want, I want, we want to value add it and we want to provide these superfoods to people so that we can have a healthy and strong Australian you keep, people. You, you keep saying this, Andrew, but I'm concerned that if we do this program and it becomes a lot more popular than the price of haggis and black pudding for the connoisseurs such as ourselves. Doesn't, doesn't we'll mark go. doesn't matter because we get it for free of charge from Patton Park anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about, you know, I'm just thinking about the, the rest of the people that, you know, are, are enjoying that product quietly. We don't want to spoil it by having too many people flocking to, you know, and and, and buying lamb's fry at the butchers, you know, to have with their lamb's fry and bacon. Sheep hearts. Well, I don't want to know. Beautiful, I don't, I don't, beautiful, you know? beautiful. I'm not sure if I want that secret to get out there stuffed, broadly. Stuffed, sheep hearts stuffed with black pudding. What more could you ask for? Wrapped in tripe. Right or that's a bit of tripe there. We might <laughs> end up with tripe. <laughs> uh, appreciate you. you. Appreciate you finally coming on once we got through the tech issues, Tim, on your Friday afternoon to have a chat with us about what's going on in that processing space. And I'm I'm fairly sure Patrick Hutchinson will be happy with your your delivery. Yeah. Right. Might be too, I'm sure you might be too critical. Oh, good. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the uh, afternoon. No worries. See you when you so, got nothing on. Uh, yeah, that's that's a nasty thing to say. That's my that's my phrase. <laughs>